When Michael Gove was first appointed as the Leveling Up Secretary of State, I said I didn't think Leveling Up would stay undefined for long. And I like to think I was right. Say what you want about the white paper, but it's hard to deny it is an ambitious and long-term plan, putting the North-South divide and regional inequality at the heart of the political debate. But for levelling up to succeed and the white paper to become a reality, the government must now start turning those ambitions into real delivery. That means support right around the cabinet table. A levelling up mission to bring transport up to the standards of London is welcome, but funding for improving buses outside London has actually been pared back and the integrated rail plan we were promised isn't being delivered. I believe Mr Gove gets levelling up and I want him to succeed, but he needs backing from the rest of government, the whole of government. And so today, I've been asked to describe what I think success for the North looks like in 2030. If levelling up is working, what difference should we see? Here in Greater Manchester, early next week, we're holding a big event with our leaders and partners from across the city region, starting what we're calling a new era for Greater Manchester. As we wait for the government to help us with levelling up, we're just getting on and doing it for ourselves. We have a refreshed Greater Manchester strategy with ambitions and commitments consistent with the government's levelling up missions. Coming out of the pandemic, we're getting on with the job of building a city region which is fairer, greener, more prosperous. But of course, we could achieve more if the government was to deliver on its levelling up promises. We will know that levelling up is delivering and that we're in the new era when we see three things. First, a London-style public transport system with London-level fares in all of our major cities and towns across the north. Currently, if you were to travel around anywhere in the north of England, you would think you were in a completely different country compared to London. By 2030, we should have the same as them. Reliable, frequent, integrated public transport where people can hop on and hop off for a fixed affordable fare. And as well as those local links, we should be seeing much better connections between our great cities and towns with spades in the ground delivering the Northern Powerhouse Rail project in full with a stop in Bradford city centre. Second, more of our young people should be choosing to stay in the North, not moving away for work. The North has world-leading universities and innovative companies, and we have huge potential to do even more. We're excited about the government's offer to work with us on an innovation accelerator, and think there's a real opportunity to use R&D and innovation to lift the whole Northern economy. With the right support, we can create thousands of jobs in industries that don't even exist today. Combine that with our amazing quality of life and we should see more of our young people staying and achieving great things. Finally, inequalities should be starting to narrow. Infrastructure and economic growth are important, but leveling up is also about people. Too many people in the North still lead shorter lives than they should and spend more of those years with ill health or disability. By 2030, those gaps should be narrowing. If they are, we'll know we're making real progress on the other things that really matter to people here. Better housing, good work, high quality education, access to green space and nature. These ambitions align with the government's own levelling up missions. 
That's why I think levelling up could be a real unifying moment, a cross-party mission which defines the next decade. But I emphasise the word could because it's still an open question. Is the Whitehall establishment really committed to it? The big prize is both of the main political parties competing about who will deliver levelling up the best. That will only happen if the North of England continues to speak up and refuses to accept second best for any longer. That was Greater Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham introducing the Northern Agenda Live conference in Newcastle last week where we asked the question, what will the North look like in 2030? I'm Northern Agenda Editor Rob Parsons and you are listening to the Northern Agenda podcast brought to you by Reach, the people behind the Manchester Evening News, Liverpool Echo and Newcastle Chronicle and Journal. In this week's episode of our podcast, we will be showing you behind the scenes interviews with the speakers and panellists from our conference, including Conservative Levelling Up Minister Neil O'Brien, North of Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll, Northumbria Police and Crime Commissioner Kim McGuinness, and the Northern Powerhouse Partnership's Henry Murison. I'm joined now by Northumbria Police and Crime Commissioner Kim McGuinness, who's just been a guest on one of our panels looking at how the North can thrive if it's poor and unhealthy. You've mentioned one of the new initiatives that you've just rolled out, which looks at how you will tackle poverty in the region uh, through the police force. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so I think that this is the best region to live in, to work in, to grow up in. But it is also a region that has deeply entrenched inequality and poverty. And what we know is that there is a direct link between poverty and crime. If you live in poverty, and 37% of children in this region do, you are much more likely to be a victim of crime. And I don't think that's good enough. And actually, I think what this panel was all about today is that, yes, the North can thrive in a way for some people if we're poor and unhealthy, but it certainly isn't right. And we've got a responsibility to do something about that. And doing something about that will have outcomes like increased success for our young people, a better, stronger economy, but also we'll see crime reduce, and that's crucial. You've picked up on the cost of living crisis, the pandemic that we've obviously just lived through, and you made the link really to say that, you know, people who are from poorer, more disadvantaged backgrounds are often victims of crime and as you said, I think it's almost like a, a client base for some criminals. Do you worry with obviously all the rise in bills that we've got coming down the track that we may well see a spike in crime uh, in the future? We've got a government at the moment that likes to talk about how we've got fuller employment, things are thriving, things are better than they were pre-pandemic. And that's not a picture that we recognise in the northeast. In the northeast here, we had already a cost of living crisis. We already had a very long NHS waiting list. We had massive backlogs in the criminal justice system and a pandemic has made that worse. And poverty, growing poverty, growing inequality is a big part of that. I really worry that families who never thought that they would experience poverty, who have children that they never thought would grow up in poverty are about to feel that because of this cost of living crisis. And what we know is that Yes, you are much more likely if you're growing up in poverty to be a victim of crime and that can be anything from domestic abuse to robbery and theft to serious violence and we have to really get to the root of what's causing that to stop it. But also we know that criminals, particularly criminal gangs, organised crime groups, their business model is to spot vulnerability, 
particularly in young people, people with disabilities, people with substance issues, people with experiencing homelessness, essentially poor people, and say, we can solve that problem for you. And ultimately, it, it leads to a risk of more people becoming criminalised. It doesn't mean that poor people are are more likely to be criminals. We've got to be really careful about that. However, it does leave a space open for criminals to get in and to ruin communities. And finally, we've got the levelling up Minister Neil O'Brien up in the city uh, this afternoon. What would you like to hear from him to address some of the issues that you've raised? I think levelling up has become a bit of a catch-all. It's become a phrase that we use to talk about almost everything and absolutely nothing. And I think if it's delivered badly, and badly to me looks like nothing but shiny new buildings, shiny new shops, initiatives that make the Northeast look economically wealthy, then it will achieve nothing. What it should be is about tackling those issues like child poverty, getting into the root of communities, giving communities the choice, giving them power to choose their own destiny, to say, right, I want to be doing this job. It should be easy for me to go and find this job. Giving communities access to really good opportunities and making sure that the people of Ashington and Blythe and Hendon and Hartlepool feel what a levelling up agenda is, rather than it being something they hear about and look at on the telly. With me now is North Tyne Mayor Jamie Driscoll, who has just taken part in a fascinating discussion on how the North can speak with one voice. Jamie, perhaps we can start with your call for a coup de North. Uh, <laughs> can you perhaps explain what you were what were you talking about there? It's interesting, isn't it? When people talk about the North, perhaps don't realise how huge it is in terms as an economic unit, as, as a cultural unit. 16 million people live here, and that's twice the population of Scotland and Wales put together we'd actually be a mid-sized European country. (laughs) And yet, we don't get any decision-making about what happens to our rail system. We get that decided in Whitehall. Now, there are those things that should absolutely be decided on a national basis. Foreign policy, defence policy, no one would suggest otherwise. But if this were any other large European country, or, or somewhere like the United States or Canada, we would have a proper legal basis where a large part of the decision-making is sovereign to that area. So, for example, if we're talking about transport for the North, why wouldn't we get our share of the national pot here that we decide how we're going to spend it so we can have some real long-term certainty on what we do? And on a city-region basis, you know, our, our accents, you know, you've got a Scouse accent, I've got a, a Northeastern accent, they actually are not that far off our major economic Units, you know, that, that city, region, or perhaps county identity. So the idea is, not that we have a, a coup d'etat, I'm not suggesting <laughs> that for a second, but the phrase coup de north, about, well, actually, let's have some serious power in the north, because our track record is brilliant. If we look at what's happening with the work that's going on in all our mayoral combined authorities, there's a reason the government's published the levelling up white paper. It's because it's seen how well English devolution's going. Do you think we need to have a similar debate as was had towards the back end of the 90s uh, when you know the Scottish Parliament was being set up and in terms of powers there was this kind of idea that there'd be a certain number of powers that were reserved and then everything else really the Scottish Government should just assume that it can do really. Would you like to see something similar with the North approaching it in that in that way? Yeah there are those powers that I, I think absolutely should stay on a national basis 
um, the law around what murder is. You don't want that varying between Manchester and Birmingham or anything like that. Or even speed limits on motorways. But when it comes to how we invest, how we develop our public services, we've got to acknowledge that our region's massively diverse in itself. I represent the north of Tyne. Well, that includes massively urban centres like Newcastle. In Bellingham, in Northumberland, five people per square kilometre. In Heaton, 11,000 people per square kilometre. It is a different place. And yet, there's so much in common. So, in terms of how this might work, it comes down frequently to money. So, we need a situation where there's there's been a, a long-term lack of investment in the north, in the northeast in particular, so we need that investment here to get us pump-primed. But then we need the situation where if we make decisions, we can get the financial benefit of those decisions. If we're working to bring industry here, if we're developing the skills so that I mean, I've brought five big tech companies to the north of Tyne already, and we're working with all those companies collaboratively to develop the tech pipeline. Well, all of the benefit from those jobs goes straight to Whitehall. And that's fine if they give us the investment back, but they don't. So these are the sort of mechanisms we need. So we're at the Northern Agenda Live conference. It's uh, lunchtime now, and uh, Neil O'Brien, the Leveling Up Minister, has just been speaking. He's just given his keynote speech, which was a fascinating one about empowering local leaders and getting our towns and cities going at full tilt, talking about his experiences in the North. Prior to your speech, Neil, we had a few uh, interesting uh, debates about the future of the North. And I just wanted to ask you about a couple of things that have that have come up recently in terms of your your remit. So earlier this week, Dan Jarvis, the South Yorkshire mayor, was talking about what was holding South Yorkshire back. He was talking about this sort of beauty contest culture of local leaders having to constantly bid for things, the Towns Fund, the uh, Freeports, all, all these different competitive processes, which are exhausting and transactional, and they spend a lot of time and money on them and don't always get anywhere. And he says ending that culture is key to levelling up. Do, do, you, do you agree with that? So I think that um, uh, through the shared prosperity fund that we're about to launch, we're going to create a kind of uh, allocated rather than competitive stream of funding for local government, because I do recognise there is a need for a kind of balanced diet here. There's lots of good things about competitive processes, you're getting you know, really good projects coming through, things like the levelling up fund can do some really big transformative things for, for places, but it is also good to have that certain uh, you know, allocated fundings where you know you what you've got for several years and you can plan for the long term. And that kind of need for long-term certainty also shaping some of the other things we're doing. So if you think about the, the 1.8 brown uh, the 1.8 billion brownfield fund uh, uh, spending review, one of the ways that we're spending that is through uh, devolving it to local places. But we're also uh, using some of that to help Homes England deliver kind of long-term partnerships with uh, ambitious places to bring about uh, King's Cross style regeneration in 20 places actually Sheffield is one of the first places who are doing it uh, and because we recognise that all these things cannot be done overnight that they do require the kind of long term partnerships and other things like the, the devolution deals processes where we've set up uh, you know combined authority mayors we've given them long term 30 year budgets that we've been able to borrow against we've given them kind of long term uh, funding settlements for things like um, uh, transport through the sustainable city region transport settlements we're defragmenting that spending, we're making it uh, longer term. And so uh, absolutely, I do think that is an important uh, thing to do. And you don't want to have 
too much chopping and changing, too many different fragmented pots of funding. That's one of the themes of the levelling up white paper. So in that sense, I agree. And you mentioned the Shared Prosperity Fund. Now, obviously, the, the full details of it haven't come out yet, but that is part of your ministerial remit. There are uh, the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, their analysis uh, suggests some parts of the North will be net losers in terms of what they previously would have got, including the Tees Valley. I mean, can you put those, can you put those fears to bed? Um, the process is still going. I can't announce what the allocations are going to be uh, today. Uh, obviously, what people used to get is obviously an important consideration. We're obviously thinking about all those things. Uh, I hope we can uh, put people's minds at rest once the, the fund comes out. Uh, I would just stress that no decisions have been made, no one's losing anything, um, and we are uh, conscious of uh, the fact that some places have used this funding to do really important things, and uh, uh, we have, you know, uh, have to consider that as we're making those allegations. And the very final question now, obviously, you're a former Treasury Minister, and when you hear about levelling up and uh, the big projects that need to happen, you, you hear that there's lots of ambition in your department, in Grant Chaps's department for transport, but that ultimately the Treasury, who are holding the purse strings, they have all these different things that they need to spend money on, obviously the cost of living crisis and net zero, and that ministers like you and Michael Gove don't always get all the money that you would ideally have wanted to spend on levelling up. I mean, I guess you can see it from both, no, from totally. both points of view. Just so everyone would like to have infinite money to spend on, on, on everything and we have to make uh, choices, that's what politics is all about. I think that the Treasury uh, are, are strong advocates of levelling up and you know, through some of the things the Chancellor did at Spending Review, which we contributed to as well, you know, we're making really powerful investments uh, in in things that will really change the economy of places like uh, the Northeast. So, you know, the Global Britain Investment Fund will help us to do more of the kinds of things that we've done to secure investment, uh, like the one that Nissan have made uh, in Sunderland, like the Gigafactory up in Blythe here. You know, these are huge inward investments that you can literally see from space. You know, 30 billion that we're putting into net uh, zero spending. You know, that again is bringing huge numbers of new jobs here. You know, Port Tyne is going to service Dogger Farm, which is literally like the world's biggest offshore wind um, uh, uh, farm up in Blythe again. That's leading to loads of new jobs. They've got the renewable engine catapult. They just tested the literally the world's biggest uh, wind turbine blade. You know, so the things we're doing uh, at that kind of big level are helping here in the Northeast. Treasury decisions are also helping in terms of. You know, directly helping individual people uh, to to have more money and to to fight low pay. You know, the changes to uh, the UC taper rate that's going to make you know nearly two million people thousand pounds better off. You know, the, the the national living wage, which will be one of the highest minimum wages anywhere in the world. You know, the increase we're seeing this year that will make full time workers potentially about a thousand pounds better off. You know, the billion quid that we're putting into helping those who are sick and disabled get back into work over this SR. So we're kind of going in at multiple levels, uh, and I think as well as those investments directly in the economy and in individual living standards, I think that the Treasury are also powerful advocates and always have been powerful advocates for the devolution agenda and all the things we can do that. Because I think uh, 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 the Treasury and indeed the rest of government totally accepts that you can't succeed in levelling up without creating powerful uh, local uh, leaders, giving places the tools to, um, to bring together what they need in terms of transport investments, infrastructure investments, skills investments in one place so you can have the kind of joining up that is essential to, to make the most of places economic opportunities. And the stuff that's happening here uh, and in Teesside is already a brilliant example of what can be achieved. Look what Ben Houchin is doing, you know, totally transforming the former steelworks site, bringing thousands of jobs, saving the airport, uh, um, uh, bringing all kinds of new inner investors. 
uh, into Teesside, uh, particularly through the kind of um, uh, net zero agenda, securing the new Freeport there, you know, it is making a huge difference having people like that. And I think we are very enthusiastic about that agenda. I'm joined now by Henry Murison, the director of the Northern Powerhouse Partnership, on what has been a fascinating day looking at levelling up across the north. We've focused on various elements of the levelling up agenda, from education to health to employment, underneath this broad question of what the north will look like by 2030. Henry, I just wondered what you thought it would look like in 2030, whether we can achieve, or Michael Gove can achieve some of these aims that he's set out. I think the challenge, isn't it, with those levelling up missions, is a lot of them depend on government giving up control. And today you heard from Neil O'Brien, probably quite a radical speech to hear from any minister, basically saying the country's too over-centralised, my my own department's making too many decisions and and isn't letting trusting places enough. And so the real test is, can you get the rest of government to go along with the Michael Gove and Neil O'Brien plan, which is to get the government out of the detail of trying to improve local places and instead allowing locally empowered leaders to get on with it. And I think certainly the intent is there in the white paper, But whether the Treasury and other government departments, particularly ones like the DfE that have historically been the most resistant to devolution, will actually uh, get out of the way and let local places get on with it. That's the big question. And I think if the problem at the moment is it's not clear, with Number 10 perhaps distracted initially with Partygate, now with more serious matters, will we revert to the the current Treasury doctrine, which is that they really want to hold on to that power that Neil O'Brien said he always thought when he was there was a bit ridiculous that he had. It's good, I suppose, that the government are kind of fronting up and coming out. And as you said, it was a very candid speech for Neil O'Brien laying out some of the issues. But it comes to that point of delivery. You know, not so long ago, we had the integrated rail plan. Um, and obviously, there was a unified voice across the north in terms of what we wanted from that. By all measures from any northern leaders, it didn't really live up to what was promised. Is there a danger that this could happen again with some of these ambitions, that it just it just won't end up coming out the way that it was intended? I think there's always the risk, isn't there, particularly around the financial envelope. And, and I think the thing about the integrated rail plan wasn't so much that it was just less money. Uh, it was that central government dictated to the north of England where the trade-off should come. So one model the government could have taken was said, well, we've only got X amount of money. We need you to cut your ambition by £36 billion, which is what that represented. You Would you like to suggest something? And instead, what was imposed was civil servants' own interpretation of the best way to spend the limited resources that exist. And that's not how you work with places. If there is an argument to be made and an argument about trade-offs in particular, that's a constructive conversation that you need to have. But the trade-offs can't just be made by central government just dictating that that's the outcome. Um, And that's the challenge around not necessarily having that grown-up dynamic between central government and places, which is that central government always resorts to kind of thinking that it knows best and it can dictate terms to other places and parts of the country that probably understand what they need better than they do, then you're never going to get very far. And I think around things like the Shared Prosperity Fund, the intent from people like Neil O'Brien that he expressed today for it to be locally driven, decided for it to be consistent so places can plan. That's all welcome. But the amount of money that Treasury have left for England, because they've protected the rest of the country and even Cornwall, but not the northern regions or other places that were big recipients of EU funding, that's another IRP for the government. Because if in a couple of weeks' time the Chancellor stands up and decides to break the promises made after the Brexit referendum, that areas in the north and other uh, needy parts of the country would be no worse off and ends up spending less on economic development than either the Theresa May government or the David Cameron government did, then it's going to be very hard to make sure that that levelling up 
kind of reality actually comes to pass. Because if you're investing less in raising productivity in these places, if you're not necessarily devolving all the powers, just the things that Neil O'Brien and Michael Gove can control, there's lots of devolution clearly going to happen on housing, lots of uh, devolution going to happen on regeneration, all the things the levelling up department can directly control. But these school decisions that we've seen, essentially, uh, apart from maybe continuing to fund some of the existing opportunity areas which we hear might happen, there is literally zero more local control or money going into education. And if that's the case, as we heard from Anne Longfields, she said in her last speech as Children's Commissioner last year that if levelling up didn't do anything for children, then she would consider it to be a failure. And I think she's absolutely right. And in the work she's doing with us on our board, she's made very clear. And we agree with her, as Jim O'Neill has, who was involved in the early days of the Hackney Learning Trust, that you need to empower local places. And that means in whether you're in North Birkenhead or in Oldham or Blackpool or Bradford, you've got to work with local places. And this government is not as committed to that as they need to be. And that's going to leave them potentially holding responsibility for things they can't really affect from the centre, when actually if they'd use some of the money that is in the Comprehensive Spending Review in departments like education and given it to places, uh, joined up across government, not just thinking about education isolation, but thinking about wider opportunities, you could have achieved, without necessarily spending huge amounts more, a lot more than government will, just on the same old national initiatives, which we know haven't worked. Um, and academisation in many parts of the north of England does not improve standards. So the answer from the Education Secretary who was speaking almost the same time as Neil was speaking here uh, in another place was more academies is what you need. And I think the reality is when you look at what's happened in northern education, simply more of the same recipe that hasn't worked with nothing else changed around it is the height of irresponsibility. Spending public money, which is finite, we know is constrained on things we know are not going to make a difference to the most vulnerable or the most disadvantaged kids is unforgivable. We should be spending the money we've got more efficiently. And as Neil O'Brien said, that local collaboration, that local leadership is about spending potentially relatively constrained resources and getting better results, not just all about new funds. It's about changing the way we spend the existing money that's spent through public services. That's a very ambitious public service reform agenda that is lifted directly from the Greater Manchester Project, from a lot of the stuff that Neil, Nick Forbes did here as leader of the City Council, where I was a decade ago, that's how I got started. Uh, all these things are absolutely what we should be doing, but other parts of government are not following the Neil O'Brien playbook. They're doing their own thing, they're following civil service and treasury orthodoxy, and they're potentially going to waste huge sums of money labelled for levelling up on national initiatives which we know will fail. Michael Gove, when he was Education Secretary, I think we referred to the education establishment as the blob, famously. Do you think there's almost another blob for him to slay now in terms of Whitehall and its resistance made to some of these changes? Does he need to get in there and change the mindset, I suppose? I mean, the one thing I would say about Michael, uh, it, we think he's right about almost everything, but he has a blind spot with education because he believes still in the Andrew Adonis orthodoxy. This is New Labour stuff, right? That academisation would solve all of <laughs> the problems of the education system. And he still believes it to be true. Um, and I think that is one of the areas where uh, certainly his own historical time in government clearly gives him a bit of baggage. Very hard if you were the person who said academisation was going to sort out education a decade ago to turn around and say, well, it's sorted out in certain places, in certain situations. But in Liverpool, uh, for example, in many parts of the North East, it's not delivering as much as we thought it would. And actually, we've realised that housing and health are probably more important in determining how kids do rather than just the schools they go to. We need to think again and come up with a more joined up solution to some of the, the challenges that particularly affect the most disadvantaged kids. That's hard if you were the person who said, we just need to make every school an excellent school uh, and it doesn't matter. And, and I'm not for making excuses, right? There are many schools in the north of England in the most disadvantaged places 
that do incredibly well with very, very poor kids who are consistently on free school meals throughout their education. The problem is that overall across the country, white and black Caribbean kids who grow up in the poorest houses, particularly at secondary school, make very little progress in education. And it doesn't matter whether they go to a leafy school and they're the one very poor kid in school or whether they're in Middlesbrough and a large proportion of the kids are in that situation. As a group, they do very poorly in education. The, the challenge is in the north, we have most of them, uh, and in the West Midlands, and the government's going to have to help us to deal with that problem. But it's a national issue, because if we continue, as Rob Halfron as chair of the Select Committee, who's particularly focused on, on white working classes, as Vantage has said, then we're not going to be able to make the change we want in our communities, because many of the, the left-behind places that they focus on as the government are absolutely places where education would be the thing that would make the biggest difference. And that's why this year we're focusing not just on innovation policy, which is really important, I think Neil's made great strides on that, but on what we need to do around place-based intervention, what we need to do in local neighbourhoods to help the most disadvantaged children, because we think that is absolutely at the centre of where this government's ambition isn't currently where it needs to be, um, and where particularly the kind of traditional barriers of how the Department for Education views local leadership, views Metro mayors, is getting in the way. We had an ambitious speech today from Neil O'Brien. What we need is for the rest of government to listen to what Neil said to us, because I agreed with almost everything Neil said. The problem is, I'm not sure every member of the cabinet does. And finally, concluding our conference was a keynote speech from Labour's shadow levelling up secretary, Lisa Nandy. Here's a clip where the Wigan MP told us what the most powerful word in politics is. For too long, I think, political parties of all colours have failed to acknowledge that the reality for too many people has been one of loss. So while I said to you that levelling up has become a bit of a joke in the corridors of Westminster, and while it may well just have been a slogan, I was nevertheless, in 2019, profoundly relieved to hear it. Because those words spoke to something important that I and many others feel had been ignored and gone unacknowledged for far too long. And I think perhaps the most powerful word in politics is sorry. So I want to say that I am sorry because the political system has not served our northern towns well. We should have heard it before and we should have understood it before. But I'll say this as well. We've heard you now and we will make it our mission to bring Labour home, to deliver a plan for Britain that matches the ambition of the people in it. All the people in all the places, not just some of the people in some of the places. So no more broken promises, no more empty slogans. We will change the settlement of this country back in favour of the people who built it. And I can say this to you as well. We won't just play to marginal constituencies and ignore the places that need help now. Leveling up may well hold the keys to the next general election, but it also holds the keys to the future of this country. One where every community and every part of the UK will have the respect and investment we deserve, and that is what matters to us. We'll reject the system that we've been handed by the government, where ministers and civil servants still dole out small pots of money from Whitehall and ask communities to compete for it. It's like some kind of version of the Hunger Games. It's desperately unambitious that some of us will win and therefore others must lose. But more than that, it just doesn't work. Because levelling up isn't about driving people down. Wigan doesn't thrive because Barnsley's doing badly. We rise up together. And I don't know when the last time was that the Prime Minister came to the North and really, really listened 
to what it is that we've been trying to tell him for so long. But we do things differently in the north of England. Because we see the assets and the potential in our places where Whitehall often sees problems. And you know, five years ago I was serving as the Shadow Energy Secretary, working closely with politicians and businesses in the northeast of Scotland, battered by the loss of jobs in the North Sea. 65,000 jobs have been lost in one year alone. As someone who represents a former mining town, I know what that means for people, for their families and for their entire community. But they had ambition, ambitious plans to diversify into wind energy, which would retain the world-class engineering skills that were known across the world. But when I said to them, why are you always here then? If these are the amazing plans that are being built in Aberdeenshire, why aren't you there? But it turned out that they had to seek permission from a junior minister who had dozens of more pressing things to do on his to-do list for just the small powers and funding that would get them off the ground to do the things that they knew needed to be done. And that is why, despite wanting and wishing the government to succeed in their levelling up white paper, why I was so scathing about it in the House of Commons, because nothing in the white paper changes this settlement at all. Britain remains one of the most centralised countries of all advanced democracies, held back by the grip a small group of ministers have over decision-making across the whole of the United Kingdom. We've got a Chancellor who's sitting in Whitehall, drawing lines on a map, choosing which of us have earned the right to have some say over the decisions that affect our lives, our families, our communities, and those who don't. That can't be right. That can't be the way forward. So let's flip it round. Decisions should be made as close to people as possible, and the next Labour government will work with our leaders across the UK to make this a reality. Not every place is the same. We don't all want to be King's Cross, but give us King's Cross-style investment and real power, and you will see what we can do. Now, there was a lot of focus about money in the white paper. I said it was the equivalent of giving us a fiver and nicking a tenner. But it turns out it's actually worse than that, because for every £13 they've taken off us in the north, they've given just £1 back. It is pretty insulting to be given a partial refund and told to be grateful, to see more money handed over to fraudsters by the Treasury than was allocated to the whole of the north of England. To see Andy Burnham, the Mayor of Greater Manchester, told by a Tory MP when he raised concerns about this, don't bite the hands that feeds you. But behind the lack of money, behind that comment, that astonishingly arrogant comment, is a bigger problem. A treasury that fundamentally sees London and the South East as the engine of growth, that writes off the contribution of other regions, that is what managed decline looks like. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and Dan O'Donoghue. And it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts like this one.
shadow hanging over Lee. For the past 36 years, a murder has loomed in the memories of this small mill town near Wigan. This is the story of a young girl robbed of her life one winter night in 1984. This is the story of a murder that still remains unsolved today. This is the story of a case that has haunted my career. My name is Neil Keeling and this is Testimony. I think Lisa's killer was infatuated with her. Where Lisa lives, I believe that's where the killer will be from. She wouldn't have, if somebody had shouted her, she'd have had to know them to go anywhere near that box. She wouldn't have took a shortcut. But while we were all at home safe, less than two minutes from our door, my best friend was fighting for a life and we hadn't got a clue. And if we had a clue, she must be here today. My gut instinct is that the person who, who murdered Lisa must have been local, must have known the area, and must have known, you know, this back entry gill that uh, afforded some degree of seclusion for him to drag Lisa down and murder. I'm convinced even after over 30 years, he will be caught. And I'm telling you, I'm having it that someone doesn't know who the, who the person is who, who killed Lisa Hesse. If I'm right, then, then the person shielded him is just as guilty. There's no one left to fight for justice for Lisa Hessian except Greater Manchester Police's cold case unit and journalists like me. I haven't given up and I hope that one day they will find the man who murdered Lisa Hessian.